0: This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. Cavalry Audio Welcome to The Pink Moon Murders, a production of iHeartRadio and Cavalry Audio. Episode 4, El Chapo. Uh,
1: l- let me, let me... Let me go ahead, and I think it's okay for us to confirm uh, that we did find marijuana um, in three three locations at the crime
2: scene.
1: Is it Grow Operations? Thank you all very much.
0: Those words at the end of a press conference held by Ohio Attorney General Mike DeWine and Pike County Sheriff Charlie Reeder two days after the murders, changed the early narrative of the rodents being innocent, sympathetic victims. News reports of 200 illegal marijuana plants growing on their property soon trickled out, with each having a street value up to $2,000 for a $400,000 cash crop. The source of this news was a confidential law enforcement official, and the details were limited. Another confidential source stated that police were investigating not just the potential for a turf war among local growers and distributors, but also a Mexican drug cartel being involved, maybe even the Sinaloa cartel led by the notorious El Chapo. Attorney General DeWine and Sheriff Reeder would not publicly confirm or deny these reports. El Chapo getting revenge on drug partners in rural Appalachian, Ohio, is a mind-blowing concept. Before I started this project, I would not have expected to find many Hispanics here. And in fact, the U.S. Census Bureau reports that only 1% of Pike County residents are Hispanic. But a few times at the Ameriste, the main hotel in Waverly, the county seat, I saw and heard about 20 Spanish-speaking young men. Staff told me they were Mexicans working on a road construction project, so I personally observed those visitors. Actor Sean Penn was able to interview the elusive El Chapo at a hideout on a Mexican mountain. Then Penn wrote a piece that was published in January 2016 by Rolling Stone magazine. In it, El Chapo bragged he provided more heroin, methamphetamine, cocaine, and marijuana than anyone else in the world. Over decades, the Sinaloa cartel has tortured and murdered thousands of rivals and others who happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time including completely innocent women and children. El Chapo was reportedly allowed to remain free by bribing Mexican politicians and police officers. Some officers even provided protection. In 2013 in the United States, Chicago declared him its first public enemy number one since Al Capone in 1930. According to a different Rolling Stone article, El Chapo had a vice grip on Chicago as well as Milwaukee, Detroit, Columbus, and Cincinnati. He was eventually arrested in January 2016 and is still locked up. The Sinaloa Cartel has continued operating. But in Appalachian, Ohio? There is precedent. In 2012, Pike County deputies and agents with the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigation discovered a major grow operation deep in the woods and ended up destroying 1,238 marijuana plants, whose street value was around $2 million. Two abandoned campsites were found nearby. Tortillas, cans of beans, certain rifles, and planning methods led BCI to believe a Mexican drug cartel was involved. And in 2010, law enforcement officers seized 22,000 marijuana plants growing in the woods near the village of Latham which is five miles from where the rodents lived on Union Hill Road. A BCI agent told a reporter, Mexican drug traffickers are becoming increasingly brazen in their quest to stockpile high-quality, domestically grown marijuana. Earlier in 2010, 38 defendants pleaded guilty to marijuana charges in a lengthy sting in southern Ohio. One of the last was Vance Walls of Pike County, who admitted to conspiracy to distribute and possess with intent to distribute more than 100 kilograms of marijuana. The FBI, BCI, local police, and other agencies worked together, and when Walls was arrested with marijuana in his pickup truck, a Mexican was sitting next to him. The feds later identified that man as a supplier bringing the drug up from Mexico. They were driving to property owned by Walls' family so they could stash it.
2: Vance Walls, he was a guy that was around here. He, um, he went to prison. Um, and had been suspected. And he's like a, he's a friend of the family, not necessarily my friend, but he has always, always been a friend of the family. I think he got in trouble actually for moving marijuana, um, large-scale marijuana.
0: Taylor, who grew up in Latham and lived there at the time of the Roden murders, shared her personal insight about the local drug scene. After that lengthy sting, some Mexican marijuana growers and traffickers realized it was cheaper and easier to grow in America than to grow in Mexico and ship the contraband north with chances for interdiction and arrest at the border. But marijuana has always been grown in the area. When I attended Ohio University, a lot of the weed that students smoked came from hidden fields around here. And a popular strain was Meg's Gold, which was named after another county that Route 32 crosses on its way to Athens. An indoor grow operation that reminded people of the rodents was the Uries in Adams County on the west side of Pike. In July 2016, just a couple of months after the murders, about $4 million worth of marijuana was discovered by deputies at two properties owned by the Urie family. They called it a highly sophisticated marijuana growing operation, with 900 plants growing under a garage and hundreds more growing under a building on a different property. Underground grows like that didn't exist when I went to college. I'll mention one more drug case that's connected to the Sinaloa Cartel, but this one is from the future, 2018, and in Middletown, a city between Cincinnati and Dayton, it's also not about marijuana. For the first time in that area, the Sinaloa Cartel was accused of distributing fentanyl and heroin. Fentanyl and heroin, like OxyContin and morphine, Are highly addictive opioids. They often lull people to their deaths, or at least wasted lives. In early 2018, a federal indictment alleged that 12 people in Middletown operated with the Sinaloa Cartel. Shipments of drugs came to Middletown, and U.S. dollars went south of the border. One of the Americans charged had been sworn in as a reserve police officer in a village near Middletown. Others were charged in Columbus, Kentucky, Kansas, Washington, and California. That case hits home for me. My young cousin, Jason, died while on heroin in Cincinnati in October 2015. Middletown is part of greater Cincinnati, so I wonder if Jason's dose came from the Sinaloa traffickers. Because opioids are so addictive and the effects are so tragic, it's understandable why they have to be prescribed by doctors. Otherwise, they're illegal. But whether marijuana, which isn't as strong, should be regulated is a topic all sorts of people have debated for a long time. In recent years, many states and countries have legalized it for recreational or at least medical use, but not Ohio as of April 2016 when the rodents were murdered and their grow operation was discovered by police. Yet weeks later, a medical marijuana law was finally passed by Ohio's General Assembly and the governor signed it into law. Advocates wanted recreational marijuana use put on Ohio's November 2020 ballot. These ranged from John Boehner, a conservative Cincinnatian who had served as a Republican Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives, to liberals with the Appalachia of Ohio chapter of the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws. They believe people should have the right to enjoy this drug for whatever purposes, and they claim the black market demand during prohibition leads to violent criminals controlling production and distribution without being taxed but they were not successful in getting it on the ballot. Many people believe that if marijuana had been legal in early 2016, the seven rodents and one rodent-to-be would still be alive. Ultimately, people use drugs to feel better, to enhance a party or to get through physical or emotional pain. But use can become abuse. And that's an important issue throughout Ohio. Here's Attorney General DeWine in August 2016.
1: It is the worst drug epidemic in, in my lifetime. It is pervasive. It is everywhere. Uh, it is in all 88 counties. It's among every social group, every economic group.
0: 28 year old Taylor, who has had her own fight with addiction, agrees with DeWine, especially for Southern Ohio. I spoke with her in November 2019. People
2: are dying left and right here, like in the past uh, maybe six months, seven months. I've had, so, I mean, people that I know specifically, I know have died overdosed on fentanyl. Um, You know, with the heroin and all this other stuff, it doesn't matter who they are. I mean, there's just tons of people with money, people without money, people with bad families, good families. It's everywhere around here, and it's really bad. Pretty much everybody I went to school with, I can't talk to them. There's no extra activities to do here. It's such a small, small town with, with not a lot to do.
0: Taylor said she wasn't using when I met her. She considered herself clean for the past 10 months after being on Suboxone for three years and away from IV drugs. Suboxone is an opioid that's used to treat addiction, but it can become an addiction itself. But her mom was still using. She was hooked on ice, which Taylor described as a more potent variant of meth. Ice debilitates addicts.
2: People are very skinny. Um, they have, like, they have picked their arms to pieces. I mean, they're just bad. And it makes them crazy because they have lack of sleep.
0: Taylor's dad took OxyContin pills. He died too young. So did one of her best friends, who died in a car accident while huffing an air duster. Besides not having much to do, she said a lot of people have lost hope from the closing of local factories and job losses. In Pike County, the cabinet manufacturer Mills Pride closed in 2011, laying off its final 1,200 employees. In the 1990s, it employed 3,000. And the atomic plant, constructed by the federal government in the 1950s, produce enriched uranium for nuclear weapons has been in a decontamination and decommissioning process since 2011. Employment has dropped from a high of tens of thousands during construction to 1900 today. Down in Ceuta County in Portsmouth, which is an easy half hour highway drive south, more industry has been lost. Portsmouth by the early 1900s had become one of the world's most important shoe and shoelace manufacturing centers. But by the 1970s, globalization had led to a massive loss of business. Steel mills and coke plants experienced a similar rise and fall, leading ancillary companies to fade away as well. Portsmouth, at the confluence of the Ohio and Scioto Rivers, with railroad tracks and highways adjacent, has largely stagnated. The
1: Pink Moon Murders will return after the break. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around.
2: It's kind of a sad, dark place. The fact that all those places have closed and there's not really a whole lot of jobs here. And then the drugs have just, they've just taken over.
0: She said many residents lack the resources to move away or are too entrenched in the community, including family obligations. I wondered how people without jobs could pay for drugs and asked Taylor if theft or prostitution are common. She said those do occur, but there's a more common method of paying.
2: Here, the... Welfare, the amount of welfare that you know, amount of people that are on welfare. I guess you could say it, it is unbelievable. It's almost like everyone here is is on welfare. Uh, I see a lot of people that just you know, like uh, women that will get their food stamps that are, they're supposed to be used for their kids, and they'll sell them. for I mean, that's I mean, it's everywhere here uh, where they'll sell their. Uh, a lot of people get their suboxone and they sell their suboxone for uh, for that. And so I don't know for other things. Is what I mean. Drugs.
0: Latham, the unincorporated park of Pike County where she's from, which is close to where the rodents lived, has had its economic challenges. Set among forested hills and farmland, these days, many of the homes are dilapidated trailers with rusted, broken down vehicles in their yards. But while it's true parts of the county have problems with drugs and poverty, most Pike Countyans are middle class and not abusing drugs. of families have income above the poverty level, which is identical to Cleveland's Cuyahoga County, and Cincinnati's Hamilton County and Columbus's Franklin County are only two points better. Pike County's median household income is $43,500. Cuyahoga's is $3,000 higher, but so is the cost of living. Like other counties, Pike has regional pockets. Waverly, the county seat with 4,300 residents, as most of the banks and other businesses, including an AT&T store and a Walmart Supercenter, as well as a common police courthouse and a government center. Piketon has more farmers and working class folks, but includes the Atomic Plant and a branch of Ohio State University's College of Food, Agriculture, and Environmental Sciences. Unincorporated rural areas can present a hard-scrabble existence. Forests provide trees for the lumber, cabinetry, veneer, and paper industries. My guide Todd pointed out that Lake White, with its mansions and recreational boating, is for the richy rich. A lot of business owners live around it. Rick Green, a longtime local journalist and the co-organizer of the annual Sam Jam Bluegrass Festival in Piketon, shared his thoughts. He said Southern Ohio is a little gem of a place, and Waverly is like a Norman Rockwell town.
2: There is a great community here full of great people, hardworking people, smart people, uh, trying to do their best to, you know, to to move our community forward just like people anywhere else in the United States. You know, our challenge now is to find ways to actually kind of reinvent ourselves, and that has been done in some places better than others. And I think there are legitimate efforts. There are a lot of smart, talented people working in development uh, throughout
0: this region. Rick's own contributions include co-hosting the Bluegrass Festival, that he said attracted 3,000 visitors the summer before COVID-19 hit, and launching in 2020 an online newspaper called SouthernOhioToday.com.
2: You know, I'm a glass half full kind of person, and so I like to celebrate the things that are that are happening, that are showing that, you know, um, you know, we can, you know, we can get through this.
0: I put the rodents among the hard-working people Rick mentioned, but I still needed to learn more about them, especially the three older men. I studied their obituaries and didn't discover much more than the names of relatives who preceded them in death and those who survived. Interestingly, Kenneth's obituary mentioned he was united in marriage to Stacy in May 1991, but doesn't mention their divorce. That reminds me of an article I later read in the Cincinnati Enquirer, in which Stacy said, once a rodent, always a rodent. I don't know why that is, really. We all was just so tight. Brady was another brother of Kenneth and Chris and still is of Tony. Regarding Brady's ex wife, the Columbus Dispatch wrote Once you're in this family, you're in. Divorce generally changes little but in address. So Dana living in a trailer on Chris's family's homestead until moving into one he bought her down the road shortly before the murders was not unusual, especially since her parents lived just a little farther up. I had already searched the Pike County Common Police Court's online records to see if the three older rodent males had criminal records. They didn't. And here's Sheriff Reeder speaking about all of the rodents at a press conference.
1: I have never been involved with that family in a criminal nature, and I've been in law enforcement locally for 20 years.
0: I then searched the Pike County Probate Court to find out if they had wills. I came across records for Chris and Kenneth, but not Gary, who might have officially lived in Kentucky. Chris and Kenneth died intestate. Kenneth had assets that were later appraised at about $16,000, not including his camper and two dozen used cars, some listed as being salvaged. Chris's estate received $75,000 from a life insurance policy, and his total assets were appraised at $217,000, which includes land he inherited and bought. At the time of death, He co-owned land on Union Hill and Left Fork Roads. He, Kenneth, and their other siblings had inherited it from their dad, who was divorced from their mom and died in 2008. Chris by himself owned the property Dana moved to with their two youngest kids and two grandkids. There's a wild card for Chris. I've heard from locals as well as members of the media that Chris had a safe with money in his home, and I have no idea if its contents are included in his probate records. BCI supposedly confiscated that safe and cracked it open, but I couldn't find out what was inside. If Chris was involved with around $400,000 worth of illegal marijuana, that safe might have some interesting contents. Since I was already searching through probate, I decided to check on Dana as well. It turned out she had no assets. I then searched for her and Chris's kids and learned little Chris's funeral had cost $8,560. It was unclear who paid that, although community fundraisers helped. Hannah May, who was an adult, had no assets except a $25,000 life insurance policy. Eventually, each of her daughters was assigned $8,000, and the rest went to her burial and attorney fees. Records show the court ordered a local attorney to be the guardian for her newborn daughter, Kylie, who remained in state custody. Two-year-old Sophia stayed with her dad, Jake. A guardian was also ordered for six-month-old Ruger since Frankie and Hannah Hazel were dead. Frankie's ex-girlfriend Chelsea took full custody of his other son, Brentley. Frankie's estate also had a $25,000 life insurance policy, and he was listed as having a 2000 Ford Super Duty pickup appraised at $100. It was considered totaled, and a bank account with $7. I spoke several times with Robin Waddell, the proprietor of Big Bear Lake Family Resort, the campground where Chris and Kenneth, along with their cousin Gary and brother Tony, worked on and off for years. In addition to accommodating hundreds of recreational vehicles, with some people living there seven days a week and others being weekenders wanting fresh air in the forest, it has cabins that can be rented. I slept in one for nine days. Robin, who was their boss and close friend, had only the kindest words to say for all of them. He said they built decks, cleared forest land to expand the campground, constructed roads, moved gravel, and did whatever else he requested. They worked long hours, valued family above all else, and didn't complain. Chris, 40, was a talented and meticulous carpenter. Chris would take wooden boards and create decks that became intricate, multi-level masterpieces attached to campers. Robin told me where to find Chris's best designs. When I walked around, I marveled at his handiwork. Sometimes Chris's sons Frankie and little Chris were there to help out, earning a few dollars doing odd jobs at their dad's workplace. A man's in a good place emotionally when his loved ones want to work with him. Chris had to be proud. I also spoke with Tony a few times and his sister Wilma once. From them and other locals, and scouring social media and traditional news outlets, I learned more about the three older male victims. Chris and Kenneth attended Northwest High School in Souda County, Kenneth, who had just started working at U.S. Utilities in Columbus, lived by himself in a camper off Left Fork Road. Well, his Pit Bull Terrier mix lived with him. And Kenneth's brother, Brady, also lived on that 45-acre homestead a few miles away from Union Hill Road. Kenneth, 44, was so well-loved as a person and as a worker that his family memorialized him on that Facebook page. It celebrates him starting a new job in heaven with the position of guardian angel. His daughter Kendra, who was 19 at the time of the shootings, said her dad would often say that even in the darkest hour, light would come, and he would tell her to live every day as if it were her last. Like his brothers, Kenneth enjoyed fixing up old vehicles and building demolition derby cars, and he grew some weed that he sold, including what his cousin Donald found on that tray the day of the murders. That extra income enabled him to put food on the table and help out Stacy, who is Kendra's mom and his ex-wife. But Kendra said she didn't know him to grow it or sell it on a commercial level, and he didn't smoke it. She was upset about the allegations of him and the others partnering with a Mexican cartel. If the rodents were large-scale growers, then he wouldn't have had to spend so many hours commuting to and working in Columbus. Her uncle Chris wouldn't have had to work so many different jobs and she wouldn't have had to bust her butt to pay for her own studies to become a nurse. She was also upset because as soon as that allegation was made, the $25,000 reward was rescinded, and donations to the Roden Memorial Fund that had been established at Fifth Third Bank to help the family, including the little babies, immediately dried up.
1: More Pink Moon Murders after a word from our sponsors. We now return to the Pink Moon Murders.
0: Taylor is a friend of Kendra's, and through her, I tried to set up an interview because I was hoping to learn more about Kendra's dad. They messaged each other several times, with Kendra ultimately apologizing and telling Taylor she would not speak with me. I'm not trying to be mean, Kendra typed. It's just complicated. Gary, 38, had been living and working with Chris prior to the murders. Chris, his older cousin and best friend, was helping him stay off alcohol and drugs, Gary too was divorced, but without kids, and seemed to be looking for direction with his life. He was described as kind and generous, and seemed to be a gentle soul. A former in-law described him to a TV reporter outside the funeral home during his visitation.
2: Gary's a good guy. Gary's harmless. and Gary was like kicking a dog.
0: I wanted to learn more about him, so I called the courthouse down in Greenup County, Kentucky, the Rodens' ancestral homeland where Gary grew up. Its records are not online. A researcher in the circuit court clerk's office told me Gary was charged in 2010 with three misdemeanors. Public intoxication, possession of drug paraphernalia, and possession of a controlled substance. He pleaded guilty to all three. Other than Greenup County for Gary, I had researched the rodents' possible criminal histories only in the Pike County Common Police Court. I now realized I needed to search the neighboring counties. I was surprised to find that in 2004 in the Scioto County Common Police Court, Gary was charged with domestic violence against his ex-wife. She'd filed for divorce in a restraining order months earlier, but she failed to appear in court so his case was dismissed. I didn't find additional criminal charges against Gary or the other victims in Scioto, Adams, or Ross counties, just some divorce records and a tax judgment against Dana. I was also doing deep dives in the archives of traditional news outlets and stumbled across an article that mentioned Dana had been charged with domestic violence, and Kenneth had domestic charges. That shocked me because I thought I'd been thorough in my research. How did I miss that, I wondered, and what else have I missed? According to that article by the ABC affiliate in Columbus, Dana was charged with domestic violence in November 2006, but the victim didn't testify, so the case was closed. She and Chris divorced in 2007, but I don't know who the alleged victim was. The news station reported that Kenneth was charged in 2007 with violating a protection order after his ex-wife claimed he threatened her she was about to marry a different man quote, Stacy Roden told sheriff's deputies that Kenneth had called more than 20 times and threatened to burn her home on her wedding day Kenneth Roden pleaded guilty and was sentenced to six months of probation End of quote I returned to the Pike County Common Police Court's online records to search again and still didn't find the charges. Maybe that reporter was wrong, I thought. I'd seen a crazy amount of misinformation in my research, and that was the only place I read about them having these charges. It wasn't until a later visit to the Pike County Courthouse that I had a chance to ask a bailiff if he knew about those domestic charges against Dana and Kenneth. He said he didn't, but that it was possible they were filed in the county court and not in the common police court. The county court was located in the strip mall next to the Kroger grocery store, about a mile away. The common police court was here in the mature and stately courthouse built in 1866. Pike County has such a small population that I didn't think it had a second court. The county court, the bailiff said, typically handles misdemeanors and arrests, along with traffic violations and some other cases. The common police court has most felonies and indictments. So I looked up records at the county court, and sure enough, I found Dana's and Kenneth's domestic charges. I also saw two more criminal charges were filed against Dana, disorderly conduct on May 30th, 2000, and resisting arrest the next day. It was unclear how the two were connected, so at the county court, I requested a criminal case information hard copy for each charge. Those records show that the two charges were part of the same incident, but were filed on different days. Ultimately, the disorderly conduct was dismissed when she pleaded guilty to resisting arrest. Her sentence was 90 days in jail, 85 days suspended, five years of probation, paying the court $163, and refraining from a woman named April Crabtree. I then expanded my search to the county courts in Sauda, Adams, and Ross, but didn't find criminal charges for any of them. I did see a bunch of traffic violations and a few lawsuits against them for medical and other unpaid bills. All of this is what I had learned, but what hadn't I learned, what hadn't been reported. Were there more criminal charges against those three or the other victims? I couldn't check all of the courthouses in Ohio's 88 counties and Kentucky's 120 counties, and relatives and friends of rodents were reluctant to say negative words about them. I paid for an online background check but it was a mishmash of mistakes and missing details because counties don't put their records online at all, they put only some records online, or complete online records go back only a certain number of years. And the background company simply made mistakes with addresses, ages, and other data. With Gary, Kenneth, and Dana having domestic violence charges, I began focusing on that as a precursor for the murders. Maybe this was a massive murder-suicide, even if that's not what the coroner believes or the killer was a relative or other close person still on the loose, could jealousy, being dumped, and or the stresses of day-to-day family life lead to mass murder? It couldn't be from an argument over a cockfighting bet, could it, or a simple car accident? Standing up for yourself after being called the N-word, defending your wife who was insulted by another man, and being smashed dirty in a demolition derby can make you angry but would you retaliate by wiping out a whole family? Or was the motive more tangible, like eliminating chop shop or marijuana competition? None of this made sense. The murders had the stealth, precision, and cold-bloodedness of a professional killer instead of a reckless and white-hot emotion of an abusive family member or an average Joe bent on revenge. And most people believed if a Mexican cartel was involved, then those little babies would have been murdered too drug traffickers show no mercy. So is there a completely different motive behind the murders of seven rodents and one rodent-to-be, a motive not connected to drugs? Three weeks after that infamous night, investigators had received more than 500 tips from the public and carried out more than 130 interviews, but they were far from solving this case. Desperate, they asked for more tips as they processed the evidence they'd already recovered. The whole time, everyone kept wondering what could justify at least in the perpetrator's head, killing eight sleeping people. But regardless of the motive, investigators said they would find out who the killer was and arrest him. They were literally working around the clock and swore justice was coming.
1: The Pink Moon Murders is a Cavalry audio production in association with iHeartRadio, written and narrated by David Rattelman. Produced by Brandon Morgan of Cavalry Audio and Casey Wayland for Weyland Productions. Edited by Tim Mulhern. Executive produced by Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger.